Hello and welcome back to the Northumbrian History Podcast. And we've got a really incredible story for you today. It's about a titan of British naval history, born in the centre of Newcastle, so a proper Geordie. He's a man who helped to maintain British prominence in the 17 and 1800s alongside his great friend Horatio Nelson, someone that people probably recognise the name of. He's someone who's been immortalised by his storied career, place of burial in St Paul's Cathedral no less, and monument which looks out from the banks of the Tyne to this day. This is the Vice Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood, the first Baron Collingwood. He was an Admiral in the Royal Navy, notable as partner of Lord Nelson in several of the British victories of the Napoleonic Wars and was involved in the American Revolutionary Wars as well. He served as Nelson's successor in the command at the Battle of Trafalgar and was sometimes referred to as the forgotten hero of the Battle of Trafalgar. So hopefully we're going to try and resolve this thing of being a forgotten hero and try and remember this guy. This is the Vice Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood, protege turned prodigy. Cuthbert Collingwood was born in The Side, Newcastle, which is a medieval street behind the city's St. Nicholas Cathedral, right in the heart of Newcastle. I think there's a cinema called The Side to this day. So, And the road is this part of that road, which is still visible as well. It goes from the cathedral down to the quayside. And it's called The Side because it was on the side of a hillside, basically. He was born on the 26th of September, 1748, and died on the 7th of March, 1810, age 61. The Collingwood family had descended from an established family that had got into some difficulties. He was one of 10 siblings, the eldest of three sons and the youngest of seven sisters. His father was named Cuthbert Collingwood too and was a bankrupt trader and his mother was named Milka Dobson. So Milka being M-I-L-C-A-H. He was educated at his hometown grammar school from age 11 and then in 1761, age 13, and along with his 12-year-old brother, Wilfred, they volunteered aboard the frigate Shannon 36 in the Mediterranean. I think I just got a paper around around that time. So pretty impressive stuff here. This was commanded by his maternal uncle, Richard Braithwaite, until the Peace of 1763. And they stayed with him until that time. Ending the Seven Years' War in, in victory for Britain over France and Spain. And this thing with France and Spain, this battle with France and Spain, was continuous throughout Collingwood's life. He continued his education with Braithwaite until 1772 aboard the Gibraltar and the Liverpool, both based out of Newfoundland with the Liverpool sailing and serving around the Mediterranean as well. He then went on various ships to Jamaica, back to Britain via North America and then back to North America once again via Britain. So he was kind of backwards and forwards all around these areas. Seemingly aware much of the time from childhood, his expertise were growing and developing all of the time. Then in 1774, Collingwood's life would really ramp up in terms of his exposure of some of the most famous battles and wars in history when he served on the HMS Preston and fought at the Battle of Bunker Hill. This battle was fought on the 17th of June, 1775, so he's 27 years of age at this point, and it occurred during the Siege of Boston, which was the first stage of the American Revolutionary War, so one of the greatest and most prominent wars in history, something that created the United States of America that we know to this day. It was a big part in creating that. Collingwood's right in the thick of it here. British forces besieging Boston attempted to fortify the hills surrounding the city of, of Boston and the harbour. The American soldiers occupied Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill, 
as a response. And at daybreak on the 17th, British became aware of the American forces and launched an attack. The British attacked in three separate waves and took the peninsula at the third attempt after colonial forces ran out of ammunition. It was a British victory, but has been described as a Pyrrhic victory, which is a victory that inflicts such a devastating toll on the victor that it is basically tantamount to a defeat. The British won the battle but lost the war in 1783 when Britain accepted American independence in the Treaty of Paris, while the Treaty of Versailles resolved separate conflicts with France and Spain. France and Spain appearing throughout this story here. Collingwood fought with the Naval Brigade and he earned his lieutenant commission on that day before returning to England. Just a little bit more on this significant, massive seismic war that Collingwood was part of here. The American Revolutionary War started in April 1775, ended in September 1783. It's also known as the War of Independence and secured a United States of America independent from Great Britain. The Declaration of Independence happened in 1776, just a year after the war started. And the Patriots, the Americans, were supported by France and Spain in the conflict, and which occurred in North America, the Caribbean and the Atlantic Ocean. So Collingwood, very, quite young, but getting right in the mix with some of the greatest wars and well-known wars of all time. So obviously, we've experienced the American War of Independence there. And we're going to start to explore now the relationship with Nelson, which starts not long after this. And it's a great relationship. It's a working relationship initially, but it's something that forms a great bond between the two men and lasts for several decades. So let's get into it. It's only in 1777, so only two years after the Battle of Bunker Hill, that Cuthbert Collingwood actually first comes into contact with Horatio Nelson. So their friendship lasts in about 30 years before the Battle of Trafalgar, well, roughly 30 years. And they both served on this frigate called HMS Lowestoff, and that was under the captain William Locker. He actually eventually succeeded his friend Nelson, the promoted Lieutenant Nelson, in and in June 1779, after a period aboard the Bristol 50, which was a flagship of Vice Admiral Peter Parker, he was promoted as commander of the brig Badger in succession to Nelson again. So actually, uh, and, and Parker. He's a man who actually made many of their early promotions, clearly someone who had an eye on, on the two men. He succeeded Nelson again in 1780 as post-captain on the HMS Hinchinbrook, which is a small frigate. And Nelson had been the leader of a failed expedition to cross Central America from the Atlantic to the Pacific by navigating boats along the San Juan River, Lake Nicaragua and Lake Leon. So it's actually pretty incredible to think they weren't using GPS. They had to just sort of find these things, find these routes themselves. But uh, Nelson actually became unwell and had to recover before being promoted to a larger vessel. And Collingwood actually succeeded him in command of Hinchinbrook and brought the remainder of the expedition back to Jamaica. Something that then obviously repeats later on in, in the story of their lives. Obviously, this thing of Nelson, the, Collingwood taking over Nelson, it seems to happen repeatedly for decades before the Battle of Trafalgar developing a bond and a trust in one another's skills over these years and obviously trusting each other's competence, uh, which would prepare them for, for their greatest achievements still to come. And then Collingwood's first major command was actually the 64-gun ship, the HMS Samson, in 1781. And then he was appointed to HMS Mediator in the West Indies between 1783 and 86. So obviously there's a lot of movement between different ships between these periods. And that was, again, he was together with Nelson 
and actually this time he's with his with his brother as well, Captain Wilfred Collingwood, someone that we mentioned a lot earlier on in the story, uh, who he actually went away to sea with when he was uh, 13 years old, and obviously his brother was only 12. And the, again, preventing American ships from trading in the West Indies. So lots of activity around the, the West Indies, protecting the British Empire. And speaking of the the British Empire, we've also got the, the French Empire that's trying to become more of an empire. And that's obviously the, the Napoleonic element, the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, Cuthbert Collins was, was actually a significant part of battling for Britain during the French Revolutionary War as well. So he was in a position of prominence just in time for some of the biggest battles in the history of Britain. He captained the HMS Barfleur, uh, the glorious 1st of June in 1794. This was the first and largest naval fleet action of the French Revolutionary War. And the this was a series of military conflicts lasting from so the French Revolutionary War. It lasted from 1792 to 1802, resulted from the French Revolution, extending the right to vote, which was Obviously, something that happened there is extend the right to vote, reducing the influence of the church and monarchy and influencing uh, France's expansionist policies. Obviously, Nelson, uh, Napoleon becoming one of the, or the emperor, essentially, of France at that time. And then starting to look outwards and looking to sort of do what Britain had done and actually start you know, capturing countries and taking over the world and taking power. So the battle started when the British vessels attempted to stop the vital passage of grain from the US to France. The grain eventually arrived and was viewed as a strategic success for the French, so sort of small loss to the to the battle uh, to to Britain in that battle. Collingwood was then on board the HMS Excellent during the Battle of Cape Saint Vincent, establishing a great reputation at this point in the fleet for his conduct during battle, and he later won a gold medal for for his conduct during that particular battle. Um, the captain, Sir Robert Calder, the bearer of dispatches, explained that Collingwood's endeavours had even eclipsed Nelson's in the battle. Collingwood was raised to the rank of Rear Admiral in 1799 and continued to be actively employed in blockading enemy ships until the Peace of Amiens, which ended the French Revolutionary Wars for a short time. And then when war, war resumed in 1803, he left home never to return. So this is Collingwood leaving the Northeast, which he, he always loved being in the Northeast, but he, he left never to return in 1803. He was actually 55 at this point in his life, so not, not long to go in his life. Um, and in 1804, he was promoted to Vice Admiral and spent two years off Brest, aiming to stifle Napoleon's plans to invade Britain. So really starting to head towards the, con the sort of conditions that led to the Battle of Trafalgar now. So the French fleet, having sailed from Toulon, Admiral Collingwood was actually appointed to command a squadron with orders to pursue them. The combined fleets of France and Spain, it's obviously hearing about Collingwood battling against France and Spain again, like he did during the American Revolutionary Wars. And, and after sailing to the West Indies, returned to Cadiz uh, in, in Spain. On their way, they encountered Co Collingwood's small squadron of off Cadiz. And he, he only had three ships with him, but he succeeded in avoiding their pursuit. And although chased by 16 ships of the line, so obviously very sort of tactful in the way that he's managing to escape and evade all this stuff here. And um, before half of the enemy's forces had entered the harbour, he resumed the blockade using false signals to disguise the size of his squadron. And uh, he was shortly joined by Nelson, who hoped to lure the combined fleet into a major engagement. So this is where we start head towards the Battle of Trafalgar. So we're getting into the major battle now. The thing that Collingwood's life is remembered for to this day, that he's memorialised for 
the thing that is his lasting legacy, essentially, the Battle of Trafalgar. And this was a naval engagement between the British Royal Navy and the French and Spanish com- combined navies during the Napoleonic Wars. So Napoleon planned to actually invade England and France and Spain had taken control of the English Channel, so he was perilously close to getting there. Uh, they were getting into position to provide a safe passage. The Allied fleet, under the command of Admiral, the French Admiral Villeneuve, sailed from the port of Cadiz and encountered the British fleet, who were assembled to meet his threat in the Atlantic Ocean along the southwest coast of Spain off Cape Trafalgar. So obviously Cape Trafalgar being down in the south of Spain, then that's where we get the Battle of Trafalgar. And obviously later in Britain, you've got areas like Trafalgar Square all named after all this, this famous battle. So the combined fleet sailed from Cadiz in October 1805 and the Battle of Trafalgar immediately followed. Collingwood was first to arrive off Cadiz and kept watch while Nelson arrived to assume command, as, as we've just mentioned before there. Now, the battle took place on 21st of October 1805. The British fleet advanced on Villeneuve's fleet in two parallel lines off the Cape. One line was led by Nelson on the HMS Victory, with the other line led by Collingwood on HMS Royal Sovereign. Just something about that as well. Due to the high number of Northumbrians on board HMS Royal Sovereign, the board crew were known affectionately by Collingwood as the Tars of the Tyne. That's something that he coined and obviously called them great men before going into battle and referred to them being the Tars of the Tyne. The Royal Sovereign was much a much swifter sailor than Victory, mainly because of the, its hull. It had been given a new layer of copper, which lacked the friction of old copper, and thus was much faster. Uh, having drawn considerably ahead of the rest of the f- fleet, she was first to engage. See, said Nelson, pointing at the Royal Sovereign as she penetrated the centre of the enemy's line. See how that noble Collingwood carries this, his ship into action. So obviously Nelson was uh, delighted to see Collingwood's endeavours here. Probably it was the same moment that, that Collingwood, as if in response to the observation of his great commander, remarked to his captain, what would Nelson give to be here? So obviously Collingwood would know that Nelson would love to be right in the thick of it as well. So the Royal Sovereign closed with the Spanish Admiral's ship and fired her broadsides with such rapid, rapidity and precision at Santa Ana that the Spanish ship was on the verge of sinking almost before another ship, British ship, had fired a gun. So the amazing sort of efficiency here of, of the Sovereign and obviously of the Tyne Tars uh, as well. Collingwood uh, was witnessed at one point walking on the deck eating an apple. <laughs> that was quite comical, but obviously a sort of a window into his uh, into how relaxed he was and how sort of in control and command he was of that of that battle. Several other vessels came in, came to Santa Ana's assistance and hemmed in Royal Sovereign on all sides. The latter, after being severely damaged, was relieved by the arrival of the rest of the British squadron, but was left unable to manoeuvre. Not long afterwards. Santa Anna struck her colours. On the death of Nelson, which obviously was happening elsewhere, um, and this this happened three, Nelson died three hours after being shot by a musket ball at 15 metres distance when engaging with three ships at close range. So he was engaging with an 80-gun flagship called Bukentua. It's probably not the best pronunciation, but uh, gave it a go. (laughs) The 74-gun Redoubtable and the 130-gun San Isma Trinidad, and these included sharpshooters firing the muskets as well. So, and that's what hit Nelson was one of these muskets. Uh, so after this point, Collingwood was was notified of Nelson's death, and actually assumed his position as commander in chief, transferring his flag to the H the, the frigate 
the frigate HMS Euryllus. So the battle actually reached its climax in the hour after Nelson's injury. Neptune, Leviathan and Conqueror, as they came up, battered Villeneuve's flagship Bergantur into submission and took the surrender of the French Admiral. Temeraire, while fighting with Redoutable, fired a crippling broadside into the Fourgueux and Leviathan engaged with San Augustino, bringing down her masts and boarding her. In the Leeward Squadron, Belle Isle was stricken into a wreck by Achille and the French Neptune until relieved by the British, British Swift Shewer. Achille was then battered by broadsides until fires reached her magazine and she blew up. All the French and Spanish ships of that part of the line were destroyed, captured or fled. Of the 19 French and Spanish ships, 11 were captured or burnt, while 8 fled to leeward. Many of the ships fought hard. Argonauta and Bahama lost 400 of each of their crews. San Juan lost 350. Uh, when she blew up, Achille had lost all of her officers other than, other than a single midshipman. The resistance of the friendship redoutable was in keeping with her name. The Franco-Spanish van, commanded by Admiral Dumanois, passed the battle, firing broadsides indiscriminately into comrade and em enemy, and returned uh, to Cadiz as well. So the, before the battle, and knowing that a severe storm was in the off off offing, Nelson actually intended that the fleet should anchor after the battle so to secure themselves. But Collingwood, obviously as commander-in-chief, chose not to issue such an order, and many of the British ships and prizes were so damaged that they were unable to anchor, and Collingwood concentrated on efforts on taking damaged vessels in tow. Uh, the ensuing gale, many of the prizes were wrecked on the rocky shore, and others were destroyed by preventing to prevent their recapture. Though no British ship was lost, so and this thing of prizes, that's a term used in Admiralty law to refer to equipment, vessels, and cargo captured during armed conflict. So in, in total, so obviously after this this victory, Collingwood with the uh, the victory of his career, essentially losing his great friend Nelson in this battle. Um, there was 1,587 men killed and wounded on the British side. And estimates approximate around 16,000 men killed, wounded and captured on the French and Spanish side. So a huge victory. This victory at the Battle of Trafalgar ensured Britain's dominance at sea remained largely unchallenged for the rest of the 10 years of war against France and continued worldwide for a further 120 years. So really this 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 battle was in the context of a greater war, but this, this battle was so pivotal and so large that it could have changed the trajectory of uh, the power of Britain for, for centuries to come. Admiral Villeneuve was taken to prisoner to England on his release. He travelled back to France but died on the way to Paris. And Lord Nelson's body was brought to England and the Admiral was given a state funeral and Nelson's body is now entombed in St Paul's Cathedral in London. After the battle, on the 9th of November 1805, Collingwood was raised to the peerage of as Baron Collingwood. So he's coming back a hero here. Uh, Baron Collingwood of Coldburn and Hethpool in the county of Northumberland. And he also received the thanks of both Houses of Parliament and was awarded, awarded a pension of £2,000 per annum, which in, doesn't sound like much, but in today's money is £183,000, so pretty decent. And that was together with all Trafalgar captains and admirals. He also received a naval gold medal, which was his third after those of the fir glorious 1st of June and Cape St. Vincent, which have been briefly mentioned before. Now, only Nelson and Sir Edward Berry share the distinction of three gold medals for service during the wars against France. 
And when Norizzi, he was still Northumbrian at heart, he loved coming back up to the northeast, he resided at Collingwood House. This was in the town of Morpeth, which lies about 15 miles north of Newcastle, and Churton Hall in Churton, now a western suburb of North Shields, where he's memorialised to this day. So we'll, we'll talk about that shortly. So from Trafalgar until his death, there was no great naval action fought. And although several small French fleets would attempt to run the blockade, and one successfully landed troops in the Caribbean two months after Trafalgar, the majority were hunted down and overwhelmed in battle. Collingwood was occupied in important political and diplomatic transactions in the Mediterranean in which he displayed tact and judgment. So he's almost like a statesman on the on the waves here, still, still sailing right the way through to his last days. He requested to be relieved of his command of the fleet so that he might return home. However, the government urgently required an admiral with the experience and skill of Collingwood to remain on the grounds that his country could not dispense with his services in the face of the still potent threat that the French and their allies could pose. So Collingwood really becoming the most or one of the very most influential people in the Navy here in protecting the British Empire. His health began to decline alarmingly in 1809 and he was forced to again request the Admiralty to allow him to return home, which was finally granted. Collingwood actually on his way home on his on his final on his fi- final sort of sail back to to Britain and probably back to the northeast actually died a result as a result of cancer on board HMS Ville de Paris off Port Mahon as he sailed for England and that was on the 7th of March 1810 when he was 61 years of age he was laid to rest beside Nelson in the crypt of St Paul's Cathedral so uh, a burial to to memorialize and commemorate and obviously uh, to sort of nod towards his, his great achievements and the fact that he had this tremendous relationship with the the great Nelson. And could could Nelson have been the great Nelson without the great Collingwood? I suppose that's a good question to ask. Possibly not. So what about Collingwood's personal life and life off the waves? There wasn't obviously much time for anything really, it seemed, but he did actually get married to Sarah Blackett in 1791. She was the daughter of the Newcastle merchant and politician, John Erasmus Blackett. And he's where we get the Erasmus, uh, the Blackett Street in Newcastle. And he's also former mayor of Newcastle. The couple had two girls, Sarah and Mary Patience. And with the result that upon his death, his, his title became extinct, unfortunately. His brother, Wilfred, the very promising officer, died of tuberculosis in 1787. He was only, eight, he was only aged 38 at the time, so... Obviously, Colin would have to, to live sort of decades without his younger brother there. He was five foot ten, Collingwood. He was slim. He was described as slightly bent and rheumatic in his older age, uh, with penetrating blue eyes and a round, pale face. Uh, being long sighted, he was all he wore spectacles to read as well. So he doesn't necessarily sound like the sort of the great sort of war hero, sort of uh, the large figure of sort of looming figure of, of things, but obviously a great intellect and a great leader. Uh, he didn't drink alcohol, he didn't eat to excess, and for one of his standing, he remained poor for much of his life, apparently. Not least because of his wife's excesses, that's also alleged. Um, he was he was regarded as politically insightful, benevolent, conscientious, capable, shrewd, and unquestioningly brave, whilst also being scholarly, painstaking, methodical, pedantic, puritan, dour, firm, and thoughtful. And Collingwood's hobby was actually gardening on his estate in Morpeth, in Northumberland, and he advocated that if everyone pressed acorns into the grounds, as he did when he walked across the Northumbrian hills, 
there would be a bountiful supply of orc for Britain's fleet, so never far away from his thoughts, yeah, the, the waves and the, the, the battles off, off, the, off the land. His favourite companion was his dog, Mr Bounce, which is obviously a brilliant name for a dog. He was allowed to sleep next to his cot when he was away at sea, and he was apparently happy enough at sea, although he hated the, the gunfire, which is probably understandable. Mr Bounce, unfortunately, washed overboard in 1809, just a year before Collingwood passed away himself. It must have been a pretty dour moment for Collingwood to, to see that happen. Um, but yes, sadly, a sad end for Mr Bounce. So no, unfortunately, no great monuments left for Mr. Bounce, which perhaps there should be, but there is one for Collingwood. It's a, it's a grade two listed monument in Tynemouth in England. It's dedicated to the Vice Admiral Lord Cuthbert Collingwood and was completed in 1845. It stands 23 feet tall and looms large over the mouth of the Tyne. It's situated just off Front Street in Tynemouth and obviously is, is big in the view. I actually live in South Shields and over the water, the monument is visible from the beach. It's clear, obviously, that this this is a person of significance. You can tell that. And obviously, this will be the first figure to be seen by anyone coming in from passengers aboard the ferries entering in the Tyne or anyone coming in on a ship. You'll see Collingwood every time um, if you just look to the to the Tyne mouth side of the of the water. The monument is actually the monument's base is created by John Dobson, who designed all kinds of places in Newcastle. And will definitely be another episode of this podcast: Central Station, Eldon Square, the Granger Market. So that'll definitely be a separate episode about him. The statue is a work of the sculpture, sculptor John Graham Loth. He's from Concert in the Northeast as well, created a monument to George Stevenson, who's going to be another person we'll speak about in a separate episode in Newcastle as well. Uh, upon the four, upon the walls, there are four cannon, and they're actually the cannon directly from HMS Royal Sovereign, which is, I didn't re- know that before researching this, this element. Collingwood's flag, obviously flagship during the Battle of Trafalgar, so really, really significant. And there's an inscription on the monument which reads, Admiral Lord Collingwood, who in the Royal Sovereign on the 21st of October 1805, led the British fleet into action at Trafalgar and sustained the sea fight for upwards of an hour before the other ships were within gunshot, which caused Nelson to exclaim, see how that noble fellow Collingwood takes his ship into action. So, yeah, he was born in Newcastle 1748 and died in the service of his country on board the Ville de Paris, 7th of March 1810, and was buried in St. Paul's Cathedral. The four guns upon this monument belong to the ship, the Royal Sovereign. So, a great monument for a great man, and someone that I think we should be celebrating in the Northeast for sure. And one quote, a quote from Collingwood himself that seems to typify his life. Now, gentlemen, let us do something today which the world may talk of hereafter. And certainly his life <clears throat> is being talked about, and obviously that's what we're doing today, but th- there's many, many stories there that will be talked about for, for centuries to come that were pivotal in the sort of story of British Empire. Obviously that can be, the morality of it all could be debated, but the, the, the sort of strategic importance of it, the significance of it in the greater narrative can't be diminished. And obviously he was a huge part of all of this. Collingwood certainly did many things to make the world talk and it obviously changed dramatically. He was known as being close to one of the greatest naval leaders in British history, but only spoke of Nelson in glowing terms. There was no sort of animosity there. There was no jealousy there. It was a great relationship. Speaking of Nelson after the Battle of Trafalgar, when he was in communication with Sir Thomas Palsy, he said, I cannot separate from the glory of such a day from the loss of such a hero. 
he possessed the confidence of the enthusiast directed by talents which he had been born with and everything seemed as if by magic to go well under his command. So obviously tall praise, high praise for the uh, Horatio Nelson. So there he is, Cuthbert Collingwood, without doubt a great of Northumbria. Obviously we're starting with some real big hit hitters here. I'm sure there's many, many other avenues for us to go down. But he was someone who was so proud of his connection with the Northeast. I think that comes across really clearly and of his connection to Britain as well. He achieved greatness in his life and legacy in his death and his name will be spoken about for centuries to come without doubt. He's also known to remark something really nice about Northumbria, which I thought I'd finish on. He said, whenever I think how I am to be happy again, my thoughts carry me back to Morbeth. So that's it. Thank you very much for listening. This is episode four. Lots of new new ideas coming through from this episode, even for episode five. We've got people like George Stevenson, John Dobson, also really keen to get some female representation in these in these stories as well. We've got people like Annie McCarthy or Catherine Cookson. So if you've got if you've got any ideas yourself, please do get in touch. Um, obviously, we've recognised before that this is a massive area. It's an infinite area. There's really no end to to the sort of level of stories we're going to be exploring here. So give us a follow at NHKJ Podcast. Please send in any feedback, any ideas. Subscribe to us on Spotify. Give us a rating as well. And we look forward to having you with us again for episode five. Thank you.